Hey, my name's Tad. I serve here at Fellowship with the student ministry. Many of you maybe lead cell groups. Uh, and I love getting to, to serve at our church uh, with the high school students and seeing uh, them begin to understand the gospel and follow Jesus. Maybe some of you begin your journey with Jesus in high school uh, and you're continuing that. And uh, it's really cool um, just seeing a group full of college, or a room full of college students uh, worshiping the Lord together. So I'm excited to be here with you guys tonight and continue in this uh, series on unsung heroes of the Old Testament. Uh, I got a question, a little bit of a game, all right? A show of hands or, or shouting. What, uh, I'm gonna put a couple options on the screen. Which group of friends or what like iconic friendship duo do you most resonate with? Or you either feel like that, that looks like me and my friends or that's the friend group that I would want to be a part of. We'll start off with, with a classic Woody and Buzz. Let's hear it. Woody and Buzz. It's a lot of Shrek and donkeys out here, right? Shrek and donkey? Yeah. <laughs> Just a room full of ogres. Just would love to go out to the swamp and hang out or go on an adventure together. That would surprise me. I would have expected Buzz and Woody on that one. All right. Uh, how about Shaggy and Scooby? Yeah. Han and Chewie. These guys, Star Wars nerds right up here. <laughs> uh, the more sitcom style, Leslie Nope and Ann Perkins. Thank you. Big Parks and Rex fan. <laughs> or Chandler and Joey. Or the friends. This show will outlive all of us. It still has the popularity it does. It's unbelievable to me. Uh, and then we'll go bigger groups here. Who would want to go more adventuring with the Stranger Things crew or the Avengers? Stranger Things? The 80s couple? Avengers? That's your friend group is more like the Avengers. Love to meet your friends. Go with the last one, and this one's probably my favorite because I'm a giant, giant nerd. Uh, Who would want to go on an adventure with Harry, Ron, and Hermione? Or the Hobbits? About even, I'll take that. I love them both, so I, it'd, be, it'd be really hard actually to choose that one. I love these stories though. I'm an enormous Tolkien nerd. I love Lord of the Rings. I became fascinated by it as a child. Uh, it's, it actually turns tw- the, the Return of the King, fun fact, turns 20 years old this year, which is crazy. That's old as most of you. Uh, but I love this story because it's more than just the adventure. And the same for all of these. The reason we're drawn to stories like this, I think, is because we, we see the companionship, the friendship, the relationship. We want a friend like this. We want someone who would carry us up Mount Doom to accomplish the mission in life. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. We want that kind of friends uh, that are loyal and, and, and behind us. We love stories about friendships. Most stories worth telling are followed by the question, but who was there? And the stories that you love to tell about others, maybe the stories in your own life that you love to share, one of the most important details for you probably is who was in the room with you. Who was in the room with you? The friends that were along for the ride. Friendship's a really valuable thing. And I read a book, maybe some of you have heard of it. It's called The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, where he unpacks just the different kinds of relationships in life. And he, and he marvels about this idea of friendship. And some of the things that he talks about is friends are unique because a friend can bring out different parts of you and bring different parts of your personality to the surface. Uh, when I got 
married a few years back. Uh, my wife became friends. Uh, my wife's Christian, and she became friends with a college friend of mine named Martha. And I love when Martha and her husband Andy come to town now. They, they live in Little Rock, but they, they were with us a few weekends ago. And I love when the Wagners come to Fayetteville because they stay with us. And Martha has this unique ability to bring out a part of my wife uh, that, that, that is just kind of locked away without her. And when Martha's there, though, she is just this weird, strange, silly person. Maybe you have a friend like that. Or maybe one of your, your favorite with things in your friend group, when, when two dynamic people get together, it just brings out the best of them. And friendship has that ability. And that's why it's such a valuable thing. And maybe it's bringing to mind stories for you. But he goes on further, and Lewis says this about friendship. He says, I have no duty to be anyone's friend, and no man in the world has a duty to be mine. No claims, no shadow of necessity. Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself. For God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it's one of those things which gives value to survival. At first, I thought I disagreed with that. It's like, no, like we need friendship in order to survive. It's a necessity. Like we, we, uh, we can't go the distance by ourselves. But I think he's talking about something deeper than just, just being around other people. Because we're around people every day. Uh, and in college, you're surrounded by people. He's talking about friendship. Deeper than just an acquaintanceship. Friendship. Someone who knows you. You can be vulnerable with. That knows your story. Knows about you the good and the bad, that you open up your heart to in a way that you don't just the casual person sitting beside you in class or that you pass by on the street. Yes, we need other humans to survive as a community, as a society, but friendship goes beyond that. It's a luxury. It's something special that gives value to survival. And I remember, uh, like I said, it's, it's, different than just the surface level thing. Because I remember a freshman year of college, uh, riding the elevator up after in Humphreys, the eighth floor, Humphreys, pump, pump. I've been around people all day in class, on campus. You can't get away from people if you live on campus as a freshman. And yet somehow you can ride the elevator up to your dorm, lay down on your $30 futon, sleeping eight feet away from another human being. You're surrounded by people, but deep down you just feel lonely. Right? And even speaking the word friend, it can elicit a joy, but saying it can also make you feel that sense of loneliness or emptiness, that desire, that longing to be known, to have a friend who's there for you and cares for your soul. We all want that. And so tonight we're going to look at a person in the Old Testament who I think embodied friendship better than just about anybody. We're going to look at the story of a man named Jonathan. And if you ask anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament and, they, and you ask an example of a friend, Jonathan is at the top of the list. One of the things he, he's gone down in history for is he modeled friendship in a way that few can. And my hope is that in looking at his story, that we'll be encouraged to go be a friend like that. But also take stock of our relationships and say, who do I have in my life like that? And how can I be grateful for them? Or, or that's the kind of friend I need. And to begin to ask God, Lord, would you lead my path towards somebody else that I could experience that kind of friendship with? 
And so before we dive into this story about this amazing person named Jonathan, let's pray and let's ask God for that. Father, thank you for your word. It's the privilege it is to have it, uh, it, that through the ages, people saw fit to translate it and preserve it and that we have it in our language is such a gift. And so we not take that lightly as we open it up and we study it together. You teach us as we look at this, this servant of yours, Jonathan, uh, who modeled great faith and friendship. Would it inspire us to be friends like that? Jesus, you were uh, called a friend of sinners. And we just sang and corporately confessed our sin that we, we are, in fact, sinners and we're broken and we, we struggle with relationships. And yet you've shown us friendship in so many ways pardoning our sins and inviting us to be a part of what you're doing. And so as we accept your call to friendship and as we try to be friends with one another, would your word empower us to do that? And by your spirit, would you help us to understand this in a way that would change the way we live and go about friendship? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Jonathan's story is found in, in 1 Samuel. We first meet him in chapter 13, and we get little bits of his story through the end of 1 Samuel and into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Uh, and Jonathan was the son of Saul, Saul, the first king of Israel, which would make Jonathan the first prince of Israel. Uh, and he was this, this amazing person. Uh, he, he, he was, when, when his father became the king of Israel, I wonder what that felt like for him, that his father's called to this incredible task, a daunting task, as at the time Israel was just these 12 kind of loosely connected tribes. And they're constantly fighting with each other, fighting against the Canaanites and the Philistines and the other tribes that were in the land of Israel. And it was just chaos. If you read Judges, you're like, what is going on? How is this fit into God's story? It was wild. And yet, Samuel, we begin to get the story of the tribes coming together. And Saul is the first person that's put forward as the king, given the task, unite the 12 tribes of Israel and lead them uh, to follow God's ways and be loyal to Yahweh and bind together to, to take up that purpose, the people of Israel, to be a blessing to the nations. It's a daunting task. And by consequence of his father being called, it also calls Jonathan into this. And in his mind, he's surely thinking, one day I could end up also being the king of Israel. What a, what a burden and a responsibility to take on. And yet he does so uh, with, with faith. And Jonathan is a character who, off the bat, when we first meet him, he embodies real faith. Not just lip service to Yahweh, not just, I, I, I say I'm one of God's people, I believe this, we do all the sacrifices and, and stuff like that because we're supposed to. No, he really, really believed in Yahweh. He took risks for the glory of God. Early on in Saul's kingship, as the people are still scattered, they come up against an enemy, the Philistines. And it's actually Jonathan who boldly leads part of the Israelite army and secures a major victory that in turn inspires all the rest of Israel to rally around King Saul and to continue fighting and pursuing victory and taking the land that God had given their people and living out that calling as his people. He gains the loyalty of the people by doing these bold, crazy acts of faith. There's a story in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel where the armies are camped out against one another. and They're a stalemate. And people in the Israelite camp are starting to lose faith. 
because they're outnumbered. Many of them are sneaking away in the night. And Jonathan's sitting there and he's fired up and he looks at his armor bearer, probably just a young boy that's tagging along with the army. And he looks at him, he says, I bet we could take him. And in fact, why not? You and I, let's go up there and challenge this, this outpost of our enemy and God will give us victory. Perhaps Yahweh will be with us. And so they do. And they go up and they challenge these Philistines on this hill and they taunt them and tell them to come up and fight them. And they scale a cliff with their bare hands and get up there and two on 20, they win. And it's such an, uh, such an amazing fight that it causes an uproar through the rest of the Philistine camp. And it, God sends almost like an earthquake and the Philistines actually begin fighting each other. And the Israelites in their camp, they hear this commotion and they're like, what is going on? And they, they take a head count and they're like, where's Jonathan and his armor bearer? And they realize they're taking him on by themselves. And so they all rally and they go and they win the day. That's Jonathan, that bold faith. I know that Yahweh will be with us. He has this outrageous faith in the glory of God to defend him. And it inspires the loyalty of Israel. And they look to Jonathan as a leader. He has the wisdom of a leader and the way that he goes about his dealings with the people. And he cares for the other soldiers' needs. He's looked to as a princely person. And in fact, Jonathan, I think, had all the makings of a king. And as someone in line to the throne, as an Israelite, you would look at him and be like, we're going to be fine because Jonathan is the future of our kingdom. Jonathan will one day be king, right? And yet, even though he had all the makings of a king and he embodied real faith, he also had a, a reckless father. And through his story, we realize that he endures this, this reckless father in Saul. And Saul's a really compelling character. And if you're like me and you struggle with people-pleasing and, and insecurity of what other people think about you, go read Saul's story. It's a tragic story and it's compelling. It'll make you want to, to learn how to be free of that kind of insecurity and people-pleasing tendencies because it leads to his downfall over and over. It has some serious consequences for himself and we're gonna see also for Jonathan because Saul has such an inspirational start and when he's called to be king, he actually, he even goes out prophesying and people are like, is Saul even one of the prophets? He's so filled with the spirit of God and people are rallied to him and he has these great victories on the battlefield but he's so insecure of what people think and as before that story where Jonathan goes up on the hill, he's getting impatient because before they could go into battle, they were waiting on Samuel, the priest, to come and offer sacrifice, customary practice before going into battle. And he's seeing men leaving the army. And he's like, we're, we're screwed. Like, they're going to keep leaving. And what is taking Samuel so long? And so impatiently, he goes and he offers the sacrifice himself. Moments before Samuel gets there, See, looks at me, you've done something unwise and unrighteous. You've stepped out of your lane. And God's going to remove the kingship from you because you're not this steadfast, steady, faithful leader. You're going to lead the people into ruin. And God's going to begin taking the kingdom away from you if you don't get in line and trust in him and stop being so impatient and irrational and insecure. When Jonathan went out to fight, Saul, in a moment of just irrationality, he, he, he says, let no man in this entire army eat a morsel of food until all of our enemies are vanquished. 
intentionally weakening his entire men out of just this rash desire to control the men of the army and impose them with this burden. Jonathan gets back though, and he, he hasn't heard that his father has made such an irrational oath. Said that if anybody eats before they've vanquished their enemies, they would be put to death. And Jonathan's weary and burdened from fighting. And he sees some honey nearby on the ground and he dips his staff in and he eats. And the people are like, whoa, no, 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 Jonathan, wait. Eventually Saul finds out and he's caught now because he's made this irrational oath that he's gonna have to kill his own son over something so petty. And the people, though, they're loyal to Jonathan and they beg Saul, don't kill him. It's because of him that we're winning. Don't be such a fool. Your son is the reason that we've won this victory. And Saul continues to lead in this insecure way. When, when David steps onto the scene and begins having these victories and gaining the loyalty of the people and Saul sees him as a threat, his insecurity leads to just constant fracturing of his kingdom and his loyalty is inconsistent. One day he loves showing love and loyalty to David as this valuable general in his army. And the next he's throwing spears at him, trying to kill him. He was unstable. And because of that, because of his his continued disobedience to Yahweh. Through Samuel, God communicates, I'm taking the kingdom away from you and I've anointed another and one day David will be king. And so Jonathan had to live with that. This, this, the sins of his father impacting him and his life and his future. Again, not just by birthright should the throne have been his, but by merit. He had all the character and the goodness and the faithfulness of someone who could have been a good king. And yet that chance was ruined because of his father. Put yourself in his shoes. How would you navigate that? Some of you probably can guess what it feels like. Maybe you've had to deal with the consequences of some of your parents' mistakes or continued patterns of sin. Maybe be it was infidelity or lack of integrity in their business, divorce, neglect, addiction, and you've experienced the consequence of parents' failures and maybe even lost out on opportunities because of that. You know that tension that that creates in you. On one hand, you love and you care for your parent. You want to honor them, as God has called us to, and yet you know Deep down, I'm having to deal with some of the baggage of our family, and this isn't fair. And that's what Jonathan, I think, felt like. And so, with that, though, how do you think he reacted when this up-and-coming bright youth named David steps on the scene? And it looks like this is going to be the person who inherits the throne that should have been mine. Do you think that, that when rumors started spreading that Samuel had anointed some kid named David as the next king of Israel, do you think he felt threatened by that? Maybe uh, when David, this nobody backwards shepherd kid, shows up and defeats Goliath and starts to, to win over the people, do you think he was jealous? Thinking, I've done things like that. I've taken on an enemy. Remember whenever me and my armor bearer took on those 20 guys? That should have been me. I've shown the same kind of faith. And when David began to grow in his fame amongst the people for his victories on the battlefield and a successful general of Saul's armies, do you think that Jonathan secretly behind closed doors tried to undermine him, gossiping, trying to tarnish his image so that people wouldn't begin flocking after David? 
Or maybe it would have been likely that as David eventually gets sent out on the run because Saul sees him as a threat and wants to have him executed and killed to protect his own control of the throne, maybe that Jonathan would have seen that as an opportunity to betray David. And if David's out of the picture, then maybe I can get the throne back for myself one day. Maybe I can manipulate David because we're friends and I can lure him into a trap. That's kind of how stories like this go. Usually, when somebody emerges on the scene, you see them as a threat. We've all seen the dramas on TV, the shows. This is when you betray that person to secure what's yours. That's certainly how most of us would act in that situation, right? But instead of seeing David as a rival to hate, Jonathan saw him as a friend to love. And oddly, they strike up a friendship. And instead of seeing him as a threat, he sees him as someone to care about. Again, C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves that friendship is born at the moment when one says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. There's this sense of camaraderie, this connection, this you're like me, you think like me, we have this in common, this shared affinity or value. And I thought I was the only one, and so we're friends now. One of my best friends to this day, I met in eighth grade. His name's Josiah. And as all the cool kids were, we met at band camp. He walked by, and even cooler than kids that were in band, he overheard us talking about a video game. And he walked up and he said, you guys play WoW? Which for those of you that aren't nerds, is World of Warcraft. And he said, y'all play WoW? We said, yes. Want to be friends? And immediately he joined our friend group. And granted, our relationship has gone so much farther than that because I suck at video games and all my friends were just nice to me to let them keep hanging out with them. But our friendship grew and developed, but it began in that moment of a shared interest. And it's deepened over the years as our interests have continued to align because we both love Jesus and we want to follow him, we want to serve. And even though we have diverging interests as well, we're bound by that because we have shared memories together. We've done life together, but it began in that moment of, you're like me, you're a geek, we could be friends. When I think about Jonathan and David meeting, these unlikely friends, one, the son of a king, a prince of whole people, and David, this last son of Jesse, who kind of just gets kicked out to go shepherd the sheep in the fields. Two people from very different worlds, and yet suddenly they're, they're immediately friends in a moment. And it happens after David defeats Goliath, and he's back in the camp, and it says that they just strike up this immediate friendship. And I wonder if, if Jonathan sees in David someone like him, someone else who has this daring faith in Yahweh, who's willing to, on behalf of his people and for the glory of God, to take on an immense risk to risk their life to face off against Goliath. And Jonathan's like, I've done similar things. You have faith like that in Yahweh too? I like you. No one else seems to have faith in Yahweh like that. And I've just been looking for someone who shares in this passion for God's glory and who wants to see our people live up to this calling. Somebody else is like me. And immediately they're friends. And it goes on, and that initiates this story where we continue to see that lastly, Jonathan, he, he exemplifies this radiant kind of friendship, this, this bright, 
light in the darkness kind of friendship, unlike other people that he loves and he's loyal. He does friendship unlike anybody else that we see in this story. And I want to think through just a few principles that we see taking some select passages from Samuel to see the kind of friend that he was to David. Uh, that again, after they meet, says that after David had finished talking with Saul, after killing Goliath, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return home to his family. But Jonathan made a covenant, a promise with David. It's commitment because he loved him as himself. He even took off his own robe and gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword, his bow and his belt. Looks at him and again, from totally different worlds, royalty, farmer boy. And yet he says, you have faith in God. And I connect with that. That resonates with me. You're one of us. All that I have is yours. I love you as myself. We're one in spirit. We're on the same wavelength here. I love you. And that means that whatever I have belongs to you because I love you as myself. That's, that's a godly friend. Loves like that. Loves their friend like themselves. If harm comes upon their friend, they view it as harm done to themselves because they're that one and together Jonathan was a godly friend who loved. A godly friend defends. When David began growing in, in, in his fame and people began realizing that David was probably going to be the one to become the king of Israel, that he'd been anointed by God, and Saul is so threatened by that, he actually, he, he gathers some of his officials and Jonathan, and he says, we gotta kill this guy. He's a threat to the throne. We, we gotta get rid of him. And Jonathan actually goes and he warns David because they're that close. Uh, and he goes and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to my father. Just hang tight. I'll, I'll talk him off the ledge here. And it says that Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father, said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant. David, he's not wrong to you. What has he done but benefited you greatly? He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine Goliath. He, he risked his life for you, his king. And the Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it, and you were happy that day. So why then would you do wrong to an innocent man, killing him for no reason? And so Saul relents. He listens to Jonathan, because Jonathan went to the defense of David. And the friend does that. When they see risks to their friends, people slandering their friends, speaking ill of them, plotting against them, they stand up for them. They go to bat for them. They have their back. They're in their corner. A godly friend defends. And yet, Saul changes his mind. And again, he's kind of this inconsistent back and forth person. And he continues to begin plotting how he's going to kill David. And, and well after this, there's a feast. And, and David's pretty sure that if he goes, Saul's going to have him arrested and killed. He talks to Jonathan about this. And Jonathan's like, no, no, uh, let, me, let me check, okay? If you're so concerned that my father's going to try to kill you again, Hang out in the fields for a while. Then I'll go to the feast and I'll send a message after I talk to my father. And he goes to the feast and Saul starts asking a lot of questions. Where's David? Is he coming? And, and Jonathan begins kind of making excuses for him and Saul sees through it and he accuses him. Curses at his own son over this. He, at one point, as Jonathan's pleading with his father, trying to defend his friend, it says that Saul hurls a spear towards him, 
pin him to the wall. His own son, he's that angry and irate, just seething with anger and hatred for David, wanting him dead. Feels so betrayed that his own son would stand up for him and call him out on his evil plans. So Jonathan knows, okay, it's bad for David. He shouldn't come up here. My dad's pretty angry. And he goes out though in the field. And even though despite that, despite risk of his own life, he maintains loyalty to David. David gets up from his hiding in the field and he bows down before Jonathan. He knows that he's come out to tell him with his face to the ground. And then they, they kissed one another and wept together. And, and that might sound strange to us that would have probably been more customary in them. They're saying goodbye to one another. David's gonna have to go on the run like a fugitive. And they're weeping over that, that they might not see each other ever again. Best friends. And the circumstances have gotten so rough that David has to flee. And yet Jonathan says to him, go in peace. We have a sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. We've got this covenant friendship, David. I'm with you. I'm loyal. Even though my father may still come after you and try to kill you, know that I'm loyal to you and I will defend you with my life if I have to. David left and Jonathan went back to town again, thinking they might have, never see each other again. And yet they've got this loyal friendship that even is costly for Jonathan. That he would risk his own life for his friend David. Again, Saul continues to pursue David to try to kill him. And as he's, David's kind of living this renegade warrior lifestyle now, out, out hiding uh, in the wilderness, knowing that Saul's on his heels looking for him. And he gets word as he's in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Paul had come out to take his life. But Jonathan goes to him, helped him find strength in God. He said, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Godly friends strengthens your faith in God. When they recognize that you're down and David's distressed, he's been banished from his own home because of this madman Saul. And Jonathan goes to him, risking all to sneak away, to encourage his friend, strengthen his faith in God, tell him it's gonna be okay. I'm still for you. And notice the sacrificial element in this. You will be king over Israel. And again, there's no sense of pretense or jealousy or resentment, bitterness. Jonathan says, even though it should be his throne, by birthright, by merit. And yet he, he willingly lays that down, gives up his right to the throne to elevate and strengthen his friend David. And this was, as far as we know, the last time they saw each other. Reiterating that covenant. Jonathan calling him, you're my king. I'll follow you. I'll trust that God has anointed you and not me. And I'll still be your friend, still be loyal to you, still come to your aid when you need it. And sadly, that's the last time they ever saw each other. Jonathan goes to battle alongside his father, Saul, and they both fall in battle and they're killed. And later David gets word of it and he weeps. His truest friend in the world has been killed. And he, he weeps and he, he mourns his friend and he, 
he writes this song about it. He says, oh, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. It's grief stricken for his friend. And I know that as modern readers, we might read this and say, what's this about your love being greater, more wonderful than that of women? And we know Jonathan, or David's story. And David, for all of his great qualities, he, he, he struggled to show uh, proper love and devotion to his wife. But as a modern reader, uh, let's not jump to the conclusion that their friendship was something romantic and more than friendship. I think that speaks more against our culture and our understanding that we impose that on this passage rather than seeing there was a friendship here between Jonathan and David, so intimate. And if we jump to thinking that intimate friendship has to equate romance, I think we lose sight of what friendship is meant to be. That friendship itself can be intimate. And you still have that sense of bearing your soul to one another. And that's what they had. That's what they shared. I think oftentimes we're honest. You can even look at some of your own friendships and relationships. That person who's longing for friendship and connection, and actually they, they, they ruin their opportunities for friendship because they're constantly bouncing from one romantic fling to the next. You probably know a friend maybe that in your group. You're like, man, I should be single for a while with this dude. But that's the kind of friendship I think we, we need and we lose sight of it. And oftentimes we sacrifice it. We sacrifice that kind of deep, authentic friendship for other types of relationships. When we see their story and we reflect on it, the what a type of friendship to aspire to. Oh, one that loves, defends, is loyal, and strengthens, comes to the aid of, is there for till the end. That's the kind of friendship we need. That's the kind of friendship we ought to try to give to our friends. And when I step back, though, and I marvel at this story again, I'm so caught up caught off guard by the fact that, that your assumption would be that Jonathan would view David as a threat to something that was rightfully his and that he was willing to lay that down and still show this kind of radical friendship to David. That says a lot about his faith. Uh, and I think that that's the idea that I've been left with. When I examine my own friendships, what does it say about my faith? Of our friendships and the way that we go about friendship, the manner of our friendship towards other people says something, sends a message about our faith in God. Because that's the compelling thing about Jonathan, not just his friendship, but his loyalty to God, his faith in his creator that God had a better plan. And that even though all of his circumstances seem to be going awry, that, that all of his chances at his future that maybe he longed for were ruined by his irrational father. And instead of clamoring for that and fighting for that and trying to, to, to get that back, even if it meant betraying a friend, that he trusted enough in God's plan to say, I, I, I believe in you, Yahweh. I trust that you are my truest friend. Just like that psalm we read, I, I have nothing in the world beside you, God. You're enough for me. I need nothing else. And when we have faith like that, you know, we can be freed from, from the enslaving selfishness and obsession with self 
we're freed up to be friends to people in a way that's God honoring and more enjoyable and fulfilling. Leave us with that thought. Take account of your friendships. Are we prone to jealousy, bitterness, feeling threatened when one friend in the group seems to be gaining more popularity than us? Or do we just love freely? Because we have faith that God knows us and loves us. We have all that we need in God, and then we're empowered to be the kind of friends that God has been to us. Let's think about that as we continue in time of worship. Father, thank you for this passage. And as we reflect uh, on the story of Jonathan, would you awaken something in our hearts, teach us the way that you're calling us to show friendship, not for the sake of friendship even, but that it would, because it's overflowing out of a deep faith in who you are and a trust that you've loved us like no one else has in a way that frees us to actually show a deeper kind of love and affection towards other people. Amen.